Well, good morning, everybody. As you've heard from the introduction, my name is Michael Itzer. I'm the Chief Executive at the ICAW. What I want to talk to you about today is accountancy and the crisis. But let me, let me start by a, a couple of introductory remarks, and uh, then I would just want to share with you some, uh, some observations uh, about uh, an event I was at last week. First of all, for those of you who aren't familiar with the ICAW, we are one of the leading accountancy bodies in the world, arguably the leading. We have 137,000 members uh, in over 160 countries. The, uh, the big four accountancy firms that many of you would recognize uh, have their origins in the original members of the ICAW. But we're not about the past. We are very much about the future. We are probably the most progressive uh, accountancy body in the world in terms of our thought leadership work. We have a very active public policy unit in terms of working with governments in the UK, Europe and around the world in terms of developing their thinking on how to support business around the areas of regulation, tax and uh, creating uh, an appropriate environment. And the thing that's probably the most important is that we produce the leaders of tomorrow. You should only be interested in the ICAW if you want to be a leader. If you want to be anything other than a leader, there's probably somebody else that you need to go and talk to. But we produce leaders. What I want to uh, kick off with is um, some thoughts which I thought you might like to hear about uh, where I was last week. You probably knew that the World Economic Forum was on last week in Davos. And uh, I was there as one of the participants. The ICAW is the only professional body in the world that is represented at Davos. And uh, we go along and participate in various sessions. And it's an enormous event. I mean, they, they talk about there being 2,500 participants there. But there are over 10,000 others who are supporting those participants, people from the media, lobbyists, etc. But it is a great opportunity to meet with many people who you wouldn't normally come across in your day-to-day -day activity. You can be standing having a cup of coffee at the bar, and who's next to you? Bill Gates. You go to one of the dinners in the evening, and you suddenly find out that Bill Clinton is there as the guest speaker, and you get an opportunity to talk to him at the end. I mean, it's, it's fabulous in terms of having that uh, intimacy. Four of the key things that were being talked about at Davos last week, which I thought would be interesting to you, as, a, as an extremely aware financially and uh, business audience, our CEOs are very preoccupied with sovereign default. This is not an issue that was on anyone's radar a few years ago. Uh, there was a survey done of the CEOs who were attending Davos, and it was the, the number two concern of the CEOs, sovereign default. It's the first time that it's been mentioned in 12 years of doing the survey. It's felt that there is a real danger that there is going to be a major sovereign default in the next few years. Uh, we, probably here in this country, are very well aware of what's going on in the Eurozone. We've seen restructuring and rescue packages put in place for Greece and Ireland. The question is, how far does the contagion spread? But the chances are we think there is going to be a restructuring of the Greek position because the, the terms there uh, are probably unsustainable going forward. And we now know, of course, that there's going to be an election in Ireland before the end of February. And if the current opposition party are successful in forming the next government, 
they have already said that they are immediately going to seek a renegotiation of the terms uh, that have already been put in place uh, for their rescue package, part of which is going to include a haircut for the bondholders. So, I mean, that is a big issue. So any of you who are interested in that should, should just put that on your list. The second, uh, the second area which, uh, which came up, and it was actually picked up, I think, in the, uh, in the FT. I know that Gillian Tech from the FT was sitting on the row behind me, and she was scribbling furiously when this, when this was being discussed. The emergence of a shadow banking system. This is now causing a real concern to some of the leading bankers. Uh, the, the particular proponents of this in the sessions that I were, was at was um, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, and Standard Chartered. But they are really, really worried that as the major banks uh, get out of prop trading, uh, it's, all, it's all going either to areas of relatively low regulatory coverage, or it's being done by businesses who are below the regulatory radar. And there was a real fear being expressed by some of the regulators that the next crisis might actually be people who have moved their activities into the shadow banking system, and you end up with public debt being required to, uh, to bail this area out. Going back to something that Mark talked about in his introductory comments about risk and looking at various uh, aspects of it, one of the things that he didn't have on his list, which again was all the talk last week, was geopolitical risk. I went to a briefing session last week on the Middle East and North Africa, and um, we, had, uh, we had a shake, we had a couple of CEOs and two government ministers on the panel. They refused to talk about Tunisia and the emerging picture in Egypt. So it was almost like denial of what was going on in the world around them. But geopolitical risk is becoming an increasing concern to business because in the global markets that we're in today, it is probably now accepted that geopolitical risk has not been taken seriously enough. Now, is geopolitical risk just about political volatility and potentially uh, de destabilizing um, what have previously been fairly stable regimes. No, it isn't. There are some other real challenges. China. There are very few people who you will hear on a public platform these days say anything negative about China. And there are good reasons for that. People don't want to offend because uh, if you are critical in the Chinese culture, the ministers let you know about it pretty quickly. But I was at a, an ASEAN event. So for those of you who just need a bit of help with the geography, ASEAN is that area of Southeast Asia with about 500 million people in it. And they were asked in the session, what about the 800-pound gorilla in the room? What about China and Malaysia, Singapore, Philippines, Korea, Japan all said, we get on extremely well with China. We have great trading relations. We're looking forward to a very bright future with them. And then someone else in the room piped up and said, well, how do you feel about the fact that they're claiming islands off your particular country? How do you feel about the fishing boat dispute that took place last year between China and Japan? And the truth is, nobody will say anything. I mean, there is a, there is a conspiracy of silence, but there, there is an awful lot of concern 
about the geopolitical risk around China. So just factor that into your thinking as you go forward. And then the final theme, and I'll finish on reminiscences from Davos, is around sustainability. The, the World Economic Forum has championed sustainability as a topic for a number of years. But it's interestingly that, interesting that the names and the nomenclature is now changing around sustainability. We talked about corporate responsibility, CSR, a few years ago. It's all about sustainability today. It's about sustainability of business models. It's about the fact that investors are now starting to ask questions about security of supply. So, for example, you're a food producer and you're start, you've had disruption in the past two years on perhaps your sources of supply of wheat or bananas or milk. People are starting to say, we want management teams who are going to be looking forward five years, ten years, to be look, looking forward to things that might impact those sources of supply, like political stability, like currency, like climate change. And investors are now starting to reward, they're starting to put alpha ratings on companies that are actually prepared to say, yes, we're embracing this, we're building it into our thinking, and uh, they're getting recognition for it. To turn back to the topic, so, so with a title like uh, Accountancy in the Crisis, you probably think I'm going to talk about audit. Well, I am going to talk about audit a little bit, but that's going to be the uh, concluding comment. I think the most important thing I want to talk about is how the crisis is seen through our members' eyes. So back to our 137,000 members and, and what, they, what they are experiencing. First of all, let me, let me start by telling you what we see as the cause of the crisis. I can imagine that in your uh, particular studies today, the study of the crisis has been a fairly dynamic area. And uh, as we get to know more about it and we understand some of the interactions, it, it is a moving feast. But there is still a great deal of confusion and name calling and pointing out there. We've had three official accounts from the US about what caused the crisis. The most recent one, uh, just, a, just a week ago, that particular report included a Republican dissenting group from the majority report, and that Republican dissenting group then split itself and had a dissenting group from the dissenting group. It is a complicated area. But in December, we actually hosted uh, a conference at the New York Stock Exchange, which was, which was looking at this issue. And uh, we think the outcomes are uh, very different depending on where you sit in the world. Uh, there, is a, there is a very US view of it. We have a different view in London. But we're actually holding a couple of round tables later this year in Singapore and Abu Dhabi. And we expect to get um, very different um, takes on the crisis from there. But I think, broadly speaking, we can talk about a combination of subprime interest, increased interest rates, and a dramatic fall in property prices, precipitating most of the uh, collapse that we saw. But that, that led to a collapse of confidence in the capital markets that was fueled by doubts about the viability of certain financial institutions. And many of those financial institutions were undermined by the fact that they were holding very significant assets at that point in time that depended either directly or indirectly on property, hold, uh, property lending or the wholesale market funding of property. 
That was immediately followed up by concerns about the relative strength of the capital base of these institutions, and that in turn led to reductions in the liquidity that was available to them. And that then resulted in a sharp contraction of funds available to the banking system generally and the, and the availability of banks to provide credit to both consumers and businesses. And as we stand here today, that position, certainly from a UK and European perspective, has only partially recovered. We have not returned to some of the deep liquid markets that we saw in 2006-07. Financial institutions have simultaneously come under pressure from regulators to restore their capital ratios and that in turn has also limited the amount of lending that they've been able to uh, offer and that has in turn produced a decline and a restraint a constraint on uh, economic activity. Now the speed at which all this happened I mean was was absolutely dramatic I mean I remember the queues in the city outside the branches of Northern Rock and I thought what the hell is happening here and before you know it it's gone and when Lehman's collapsed the city was a very frightening place to be people were moving their money around nobody knew what was safe anymore I mean the ICAW happens to be a, a fairly well-endowed financial body and at that particular time in the year uh, we had about 45 to 50 million pounds in cash and near cash items and I can tell you we were, we were extremely worried about the counterparty risk that we had with financial institutions at that time and we were looking very carefully at whether we should be moving our money around you know who was properly rated could we rely on any ratings I mean it was, it was a scary time now the, the other thing that this led to is that a number of well-established orthodoxies around how markets work and economic behavior I think got challenged I think there are some real questions about how some of the models that certainly I learnt when I was studying uh, do actually operate in times of extremism and crisis. And we now face, certainly in the Western economies, a period of downturn and austerity of an indeterminate period. I mean, I, d I do not think that we can say we're going to be out of this in two years, three years, four years, because to actually mend the government balance sheets of some of the countries of Western Europe might take the majority of this decade. When you think of countries like Japan, who also got, by the way, the first downgrading on their sovereign debt, I think in living memory, last week, uh, when they have a debt-to-GDP ratio of 200%, you, know, you, you do wonder whether or not some of these methodologies and modus operandi of running countries have got to change. But I want to drop from that macro level to a micro level for a second and actually talk about what's been happening in business because it's been a very hard time for business across the UK and Europe. And from the chartered accountant perspective, we have uh, the dual view here of people who are advising clients but people who are then running businesses as well. So what, what have we done during the crisis to actually help people? Well, one of the things that we did early on was publish business strategies to help businesses deal with the downturn because 
although a lot of what you might uh, do in a downturn is common sense, it's amazing how many businesses don't think about it until it's too late. The thing that kills more businesses than anything else isn't a lack of sales, it's not disruption among your workforce, it's not problems with suppliers, it's running out of cash. Cash is the thing that kills more businesses than anything else. If you don't have cash, if you have liquidity problems, that's the kiss of death. And making sure that all your efforts are focused on liquidity is crucial. It's over two years now since I first appeared before a business select committee in the House of Commons to tell them, just a couple of months after Lehman's collapsed, that there was a problem with funding for SMEs. The wholesale markets had dried, had dried up. Businesses were starting to say banks are withdrawing their funding. I was flagging to politicians in December 2008 that there is a problem. I can't believe that in 2011 we're still talking about a problem in this area. And as recently as January, we've just produced some more research that has gone to the government and the Bank of England, and it was uh, pretty widely picked up in the media that this remains an issue today. It's still not as big a problem as it was two years ago, but there are still many businesses out there who are saying that sources of cash and liquidity is currently a break on their economic growth. Now you may be wondering, well, why is, uh, why is the ICAW interested about and in SMEs? Well, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the facts uh, about the UK, if you work on a number of how many large companies there are in the UK, there are basically 6,000 large companies. Does anyone know how many SMEs there are? 4.8 million. If there is going to be a private sector-led recovery in the UK, it has to come from the SME sector. They contribute well over 50% of GDP and over 60% of private sector employment in the UK. We have to look after this sector. They have to be properly nurtured. And our statistics show that many of them are saying that they're still very cautious about the prospects for recovery and they're holding back on, on going forward and, and growing. We got um, one of the other things we did in the course of the crisis we've just been through is we got a major concession from the government around something from HMRC called time to pay. Now again, you might think, well, this is a bit of a technical thing for chartered accountants to be talking about. But every month or every quarter, businesses have to pay to the government national insurance, schedule E deductions for tax, and your VAT bill. And it's cash. It's cash out of the business. The government agreed in 2008, uh, under Mandelson at that time, that they were going to give businesses what they called time to pay. And that was the biggest single lifeline to businesses in this country. It's the most successful thing that the government did because it left cash in the businesses and it gave them breathing space to recover. And it was, it was a fantastic initiative by the government. The government, by the way, are now owed, and, and, the, and the figure is, is difficult to tie down, it's at least 
six billion pounds as a result of this. But some other figures have quoted figures in, in the region of tens of billions in terms of arrears around this area. So the government have to collect this in, but it was a major lifeline to businesses in this country. And we, uh, we work very closely with the government as well around the issue of going concern. Now again, going concern is something that might sound a little bit technical to you, but when auditors go in and look at companies, they have to express an opinion as to whether or not that business is a going concern, i.e. will it continue to trade for the foreseeable future, and for UK purposes that's 12 months from the date at which the balance sheet signed. We said, well, you know, you've got to be really careful here because if someone has to renew their banking facilities six months after the year end, and it's uncertain as to whether or not those banking facilities are going to be renewed, that's a going concern problem. But the problem is, as soon as you put a going concern qualification on a company, it's the kiss of death. So, I mean, this had to be managed very carefully. Uh, and again, with the government, you know, we put out lots of information in the press that explained precisely what it was, the very unusual times that we were living in, so that uh, it didn't cause people to move into these knee-jerk causes of action. So moving on, what about the chances and the outlook for the UK economy, and are we going to see a business-led recovery? Well, last week you saw the growth figures for the final quarter of 2010, which was a, a decrease in economic production on the previous quarter of half of 1%. The business outlook, I have to say at the moment, is still pretty mixed. Some would go further than that and say it's shaky. And our view, and we work with uh, an economics consultancy called CEBR to produce our uh, economic pieces, we actually think that 2011 will be the most difficult year of the cycle. What are the reasons for that? Well, the UK's biggest trading partner is actually the Eurozone. And the Eurozone situation, I think, is pretty well documented. But if you actually take Germany out of the Eurozone, and believe me, just look at Germany's performance over the last 18 months. Germany is, is having a great time. I mean, Germany is just powering ahead. I mean, just to tell you an anecdote, uh, a, a colleague of mine ordered a Mercedes nine months ago, and a couple of months ago, he was called by the dealer to say, we're going to have to pay you your money back because we can't deliver it for another eight months. The, I mean, the factories are just full, and a lot of it's being fueled by the emerging nations who've now emerged and are all buying Mercedes, Audis and BMWs. But, you know, Germany's having a great time. But take Germany out of the Eurozone, and the rest of the Eurozone looks pretty sick. I've already touched on sovereign debt at the start, but there are, there are some real issues that we, that we do just need to keep an eye on. Uh, it was last month that the Portuguese government actually posted for the first time ever surety, so they put collateral up for some derivative trades that the government were doing with banks to reassure investors. Sovereign governments don't put up surety and collateral, but Portugal did last month, and that, that should be of, of great worry. Ireland, again, Ireland, as I'm sure many of you know, is our largest single national trading partner. Uh, we do more business with her. You know, this is, this is one of those statistics that you hear and you just think, I can't believe that. But we do more business with Ireland than with the BRIC countries combined. 
and of course we uh, we put our hands in our pocket and we provided seven billion pounds for the restructuring package that's gone into Ireland. Why did we do that? Well, we did it out of naked self-interest because the British banks are exposed to Ireland to the tune of £150 billion. Pounds. And that's, that's a hell of a lot of money. We've seen the stability, or lack of it, I should say, in the Middle East. And although we haven't yet seen shipments of oil starting to be affected, I, I think they are going to be impacted pretty soon. And we're seeing the oil price uh, rising. So, I mean, all of these things add to the uncertainty around the economic climate and, and the recovery. We've also got at a, at a more micro level fear about the impact of public sector job cuts. I mean, these are going to start to come through uh, in the next uh, few weeks. I don't know how close you are to these. I mean, some of you may know people who are directly affected. My sister happens to work in a quango. She finds out in six weeks whether or not she's got a job. Everyone is expecting not to have a job. Now, when you've got that sort of uncertainty hanging over you, she's a marketing director, you know, when, when you've got that sort of uncertainty hanging over you, you don't go out and spend money. You know, you, you, you keep tight, you, do, you, you save things, and it, cause, it causes concern. Inflation. Inflation is a growing worry. It's a growing worry because um, the Bank of England, I think, have missed their 2% target now for 32 out of the last 36 months. Now, if they were running a business, they'd have been sacked by now, you know, for missing your targets and objectives that many times. Uh, I think one of the real challenges, though, is if they put up interest rates by, say, 25 basis points or 50 basis points, what will that actually do to the recovery? And to come back to the earlier point that I made about SMEs and SME financing, although there is more financing available from banks today than we had a couple of years ago, that has been at a, at a cost. And banks are charging larger arrangement fees than they had done historically. Banks are charging higher uh, rates of interest. But the money has been affordable because the bank base rate on which they're pitching this, of course, is half of 1%. If we see bank base rates go up, I think you can expect the cost of money to business to go up by more than that. And that will start to make money expensive. Um, we've also, I think, got um, some underlying fears about damage that's been caused to the UK by the financial crisis. Because a few years ago, the UK, uh, perhaps, perhaps rightly, perhaps wrongly, was, was pretty cock-a-hoop about how London was positioned as the number one global centre versus New York. And I have to tell you that as I go around the world, there's no shortage of schadenfreude when people in other financial centres are quite happy to see London taken down a peg or two. And I think foreign direct investment into the UK has fallen in both 2008 and 2009. We haven't yet got the figures for 2010, but I expect that to go down uh, as well. But we are, we are seeing all sorts of financial activities spread elsewhere. Just a couple of things I, I want to conclude with. First of all, I just want to talk about um, the crisis we've been through and whether or not there are going to, there's going to be another crisis anytime soon. And if there is going to be a crisis, can we see any signs of it today? Well, 
first of all, how do you how do you spot a bubble? It's a rather hackneyed um, phrase, but it's been attributed to many people, including J.P. Morgan, Rockefeller, and indeed Joe Kennedy Sr. But one of them reportedly said that in 1929, when they were walking to work in Wall Street, and their shoeshine boy started giving them stock tips, that was when you knew there was a bubble. And I think there are signs of that in some other areas today. Now, you're going to be having a panel later on today on commodities. And I think it's very clear that the ratio of supply and demand for certain commodities has changed very significantly in recent years. So it's perfectly understandable that that has changed pricing. However, I don't know if you know, but £60 billion from London alone went into commodity investment last year by people who were seeking to invest in various forms of financial uh, instruments to, to seek to gain from this area. Commodities, I think, uh, is currently being driven up by a war of money. Some of it is uh, a direct consequence of this supply and demand that I talked about, but some of it isn't. Foreign exchange. Now, I don't know how often any of you look at the foreign exchange markets, but daily turnover in foreign exchange in the last quarter of 2010 exceeded $4 trillion a day. Now, foreign exchange is a pretty stable market for the most part. What really worries me, though, is the proliferation of businesses that have sprung up in the last couple of years that have been, that have been encouraging the public to start trading Forex in the same way as, say, spread betting. Those of you who watch Premiership football will know that Fulham Football Club have on their shirts Forex, trade foreign exchange like a pro. When you start to see something like foreign exchange, which is a pretty specialised market being offered to the general public, I think you should be concerned. Another, another thought about uh, foreign exchange, by the way, is that foreign exchange is one of those areas that isn't settled uh, entirely on a central trading system. It's now less than 80% of foreign exchange that's settled on a matched basis. So at any one point in time, 20% plus of that 4. Point, I think it's $4.3 trillion a day is unmatched. Now, in stable times, that's not a problem. You just work through the maths. If you get any volatility into it, that's a lot of exposures that businesses and banks could have on an unmatched basis. Carbon emission trading is another area that is, is looking uh, increasingly dodgy, but I'm running out of time, so I won't talk about that. The final one outside the UK, and one I just want to pick on briefly, is Chinese property. Chinese property was uh, another part of what was going on in the uh, chit-chat in the side rooms in Davos. Property is a very attractive investment for Chinese investors, particularly when you can get a much better return on property than you're able to get on more conventional forms of saving. In October alone last year, house prices were reported to have risen in China by 7.7% in one month. However, there are some huge speculative estates being built which are now sitting empty. There is a current estimate that there are 64 million 
vacant homes in China. And when you think about the price that uh, is being uh, asked for these, which is 22 <coughs> times average earnings in China, they aren't being pitched at your average Chinese worker. The question is, is this a property market getting out of control? The question that was being asked in Davos is, is this a market that's already out of control and it's too late? So let me, let me conclude by just talking uh, finally about audit. There have been various inquiries conducted into audit and the role of auditors pre and during the crisis. Uh, the UK Treasury Select Committee, who looked at this area in detail, asked what I thought was a, a very penetrating question, which said they concluded that they could find no evidence that auditors had actually failed in their duties. But on the basis that auditors did everything that was expected of them, but all these companies then collapsed, what does that actually say about the usefulness of audit? And I think that's a, that's a pretty penetrating question. And it's no point putting your head in the sand and saying, well, you know, not our problem. I think you have to engage. Because one of the things that is, I think, pretty much accepted now is that nobody, no profession, not the regulators, not the government, has come out of the crisis we've just been through smelling of roses. I think everyone has to look very hard at what they did and whether or not they contributed to the crisis or at worst uh, acquiesced in what was going on and didn't say anything. So there are some major reviews taking part that are underway now, looking at the role of audit going forward. Now, my view is that audit needs to evolve. I mean, as the world changes, as it becomes more dynamic, as it becomes more global, we need to offer value, not just to the shareholders of the business, but perhaps to other market participants and to the regulatory community. It's not the role of the auditors, though, to spot systemic risk. They just don't have the tools to do that. That is a regulatory function. Only regulators can sit above and have that helicopter view. But that isn't to say that auditors can't do more to help the regulators. Now, one of the things that happened in the UK was that when the FSA came into existence, the Bank of England used to commission reports up until 1999 into what auditors had found in the companies, in the financial institutions that they've inspected. The FSA stopped doing that. I'm pleased to say that the Bank of England, who are now the top dog in the regulatory architecture again in the UK, are going to reinstitute that. We were proponents of that and we, we uh, did a report on the future of bank audits last year and, uh, and that was accepted. We, we do think we need to look very carefully at uh, the structure of the market because we do have a market where there is concern in some European countries that there is too much concentration in the hands of too few audit firms. And here, I'm not, by the way, necessarily talking about four. I'm talking about perhaps certain sectors of the market, perhaps like banking, where it's actually dominated by just two firms. You know, and what happens if one of them disappears? So, I mean, those, those are big questions that we need to be looking at as we, as we go forward. The accountancy profession is one that remains highly attractive to many people who are at your stage in your career. Of the top choices for undergraduates, some of you probably have seen these statistics, three of the top four uh, employees of choice for UK undergraduates in 2010 were the big four. 
So, I mean, I, I know it will be a career that a lot of you are interested in. I can tell you, although you mustn't repeat it and you mustn't say you heard it from me, uh, I can tell you that most of the big four today have got about 19,000 to 20,000 applicants for 2011 admission. So any of you who are sitting on a place already for one of the big four, you've done bloody well. Uh, but by the way, I'd expect Warwick to do well because you are, you know, you are a top draw university. So you should be right up there. You should be getting the offers. But just think about that. 19 to 20,000 applicants for approximately 1,000 uh, graduate uh, entry uh, in each of the big four. I mean, that's, uh, that's very competitive at the moment. But if you, uh, if you do decide to, to train as chartered accountants, I mean, I'd like to tell you that we are very progressive. We take our responsibility seriously. We have been dealing and engaging with the crisis in the most constructive way, I think, uh, that we could. And I hope you've enjoyed my uh, talk today and a few of the anecdotes. So thank you for listening.